Seem kind of gay. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. Wet, sad, weary faces, depressed and upset. But everybody, let us not forget, it's supposed to be Christmas time. It's the Credit Crunch Christmas, we'll all do our best. Poor old Santa Claus, he's been So many answers we may never know. Too many questions, get on with the show. No time for the chorus, only this verse. It's true to you. Open the podcast doors, Hal. I'm just pressing buttons. <laughs> Welcome back to Kubrick's Universe. I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. At the boards, we've got our show's lovely, amazing producer, editor, Mr. Stephen Rigg. How are you, Stephen? I'm very good, thank you, Jason. How are you? Great, brother. Uh, We've also got uh, my buddy James Marinaccio on the call. You there, James? I'm there, humble narrator. Hey, man. And Mr. Mark Lentz, the one and only, our buddy. What's happening, Mark? Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome, man. Nonsense with the ha- having you here. You're part of us, part of the team, part of the uh, 2018 Christmas Spectacular Retrospectacle. <laughs> we had a lot of stuff happen this year, didn't we, guys? We did. Yeah. There was definitely a lot uh, that took place uh, in 2018 for... Uh, 
Kubrick fans a lot of uh, news. Some, of course, really good and uh, some not so good. Um, and we'll get to those, uh, I guess, one at a time. I want to hear what you guys had to have to say and uh, thought about each of them. I, I guess we'll go back just uh, to the 11th of January when we did uh, release our first episode. And um, that call had been recorded uh, back in August, of, uh, the beginning of August 2017. And we had, uh, gosh, we had Anthony Adler on the call. Um, Mark and James, Maria O'Palm, uh, Ian Roscow with, with, was with us, and uh, Scott Sheckman. And that was our first proper uh, call. Stephen recorded our conversation with Mick Broderick, the author of Reconstructing Strange Love. I mean, the, the significance of why we're mentioning this is more so than the call, so January 11, 2018 was when. Uh, it's the first posting of an official podcast, the Kubrick's Universe. So Stephen got the the website, and it, and now how how many are up by now? Nineteen. How many are up there? Nineteen. So the wow. Christmas one would be the twentieth. Uh, it, it's remarkable what you've done to 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 get everything off the ground, and I was right there with you in discussion of like how it was going to be gone about, but you really took the ball and ran with it in terms of like getting the show up and running. But here we are, like, actually, this is, as of this recording, we are less than 11 months since we launched in uh, uh, the second week of January, 2018. Here we are now in the uh, third week of December. And uh, just the other day, we passed 10,000 downloads. Oh, Yeah. So that let's well, see. I guess go on, Stephen or Mark. Do you have something to say about? Uh, I think the podcast is such a milestone because this is something that we're creating that goes out there for everybody to enjoy and get the use out of. And it's not like everything we do on Facebook is at risk of being ephemeral. It's hard to. It's easy to lose all that stuff, but the podcast it's it's permanent. It's like we're making an ongoing and increasing contribution to Kubrick's universe of here, here. I'm just very super proud of this podcast, and I hope we do it for many more years. All right, moving on. Back on the 27th of March, uh, there was an auction in Italy uh, held by Aste Bolafi, and it was an auction of uh, personal Kubrick memorabilia collected by Emilio D'Alessandro, who was, of course, Stanley's personal driver and assistant for almost 30 years. And uh, I believe in Stephen. I believe in Stephen. Uh, one of the big items in that sale was um, Jack Torrance's red, it's like a velour oh, corduroy, wow. the jacket. Is it like corduroy? Um, and I've got the prices here. That went for, that fetched 19,000 euros. Wow. That item. That was one of the big, uh, the big draws. You know, I'm looking back. Uh, I feel that auction was probably prompted by the film S's for Stanley by Alex Infaselli. Yeah. Based on uh, Filippo's book. And uh, in that film, which I see was made in 2015, 
it won an award in 2016. It was finally shown in New York in 2017. Uh, part of that was seeing this treasure trove of stuff that mm -hmm. Emilio had just in his garage. And that probably really prompted the idea to do an auction because he's in the movie. It says Emilio would just give this stuff away to people. Mm. And I hope he, I hope he did realize a very nice return on the whole auction. Was there any information about that? Well, I've got, I've got the sale results here. Um, yeah, it, it would have done all right. Uh, doing a quick mental arithmetic, probably 30, 40,000 uh, euros, maybe more. Very nice. There was 52 items up for sale, and it looks like only five items didn't sell. Do you remember the um, the Full Metal Jacket green coat uh, with Kubrick as the uh, on, with Kubrick on the breast? Yeah, that of course. that was a nice item, which is what Kubrick was wearing on set. Right. Right. Uh, wow! And that went for that went for ten thousand um, sure. euros. Silly. Yes. I'll tell you a surprise, a surprise that, that sold really well. Item number eight is a membership card uh, for the Writers Guild of America. It was Stanley Kubrick's um, right, uh, WGA membership card, which was stamped and signed in March 1969 uh, with the director's full signature on there. Now, the opening price on that was um, 1,000 euros, and it went for 13,000 euros. Sure. Wow. That's kind of a big deal, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His WGA card would be, you know, something a museum would snatch up. Yeah, for sure. Somebody, I don't know if you guys know, perhaps uh, if any of our listeners do, they reach out to us. Who had the idea to get the replica of the bedroom from 2001 out there? Because it went on display in Washington um, back on the 8th of April, I think. and then And it ran only until about... May 28th? Well, that was in Los Angeles in 2017. It was called a, a place called the 14th Street Factory in downtown Los Angeles. It was where it first... So right. some, some, I don't know the name of the person, but somebody made an incredible replica of, you know, the the bedroom at towards the end of 2001 or the, the human zoo, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the lighted floor. It, it, I mean, it's... It really a good recreation, and it was on display in Los Angeles, and then he moved it to, it was in Washington in 2018, and it's apparently in, what's the expression, on in mothballs on, or whatever, uh, and it's, it, I think the, whoever it is has ideas of continuing to tour it somehow, but there's been a long delay probably not easy to find a place because you need a you need a whole, a whole room but i there's a, several videos online of people going into it you can just go to youtube or vimeo and i remember you have to take your shoes off you can only walk in socks right but it's so it looks really cool i want to uh lighten things up and talk about uh death if i may now we lost arlie ermy of course this year guys that sucked on april 15th 74, it always sounds young to me now. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? 
Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Well, we, he uh, he died from complications related to pneumonia, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. No, yes. but that was that was really that came out of left field, and that that was that was really sad. He had a great career. You know, he did a few movies before Full Metal Jacket, and he did. Uh, Boys and Company C. So yeah. it wasn't even the first time. You know, there, there's kind of a misconception about how he was hired as a consultant and he got the role and he had never acted before, which wasn't true. It was he had he had actually not only acted, but he had been a drill instructor at Boys and Company C. But it still doesn't detract from how incredible a role he has. And I, you know, I would I've never heard he kind of to some degree has his whole career to thank Full Metal Jacket for. I mean, I know Vincent D'Onofrio has come out and said that what yeah. his career yeah. is because of Full Metal Jacket. And mm-hmm. you're pro- probably, I don't, I never heard Ermie say that, but it's probably, he, he did he, what he was in, um, leaving Las Vegas. Oh, he was in so many. Why even? He was in seven. I was I, watching. Yeah. Uh, he, he plays the, like the, uh, the, the po- police captain in, uh, seven. Yeah. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. And it's absolutely tragic that he did not get a nomination for Academy Award. I, mean, I guess the thinking was that he was just be playing himself. He got nominated for a Golden Globe for that for Full Metal Jacket for Best Supporting. I don't think there's an actor in Hollywood that can hold a candle to the performance that I put forth in Full Metal Jacket. And it's not because I'm a better actor than they are. It's simply because I lived as a drill instructor for 30 months at the recruit depot in San Diego. I, I trained recruits. Now, at the funeral, it was a little bit of a reunion with about four. Tim Colseri was there. He was the door gunner who was originally supposed to play uh, the, the drill instructor. Yeah, there was and one. Uh, Kevin Major Howard. Put a lot of pictures, right? Put a lot of pictures on their own Facebook page. Now I know we had a little bit of a moment administrating our Facebook group, where somebody posted, post, somebody took a they picture. Wanted to post Ernie, a pic, yeah, yeah. in his coffin, and it was a close pic, a close-up picture, and yep. And we we debated should should we post that or should we not post it? It's kind of tacky, but I, we did in the end. We posted it because one of the actors had posted it on their Facebook page and that was our that was our reasoning for allowing it. Yeah, it didn't come from like a tabloid place, did it? It came from a, a an official guest at the uh, at the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Which was at the Arlington National Cemetery. That's where the yep. funeral was held. Oh really? Mm. Yeah. In Washington D C that's where yep. So he's buried in Arlington? Yeah. I guess he is. Yeah. Wow. He also had a small role in Apocalypse Now, an uncredited role, uh, where he was playing a helicopter pilot. Duke 6, this is uh, Eagle Thrust 7. We've got it spotted. Big Duke 6 to Eagle Thrust. Put on heading 270. Assume attack formation. That's a roger, Big Duke. Okay, we're going in. Um, Full Metal Jacket was actually his fifth film, uh, Boys in, The Boys in Company C being his first. He was like, he was the number two. There was a drill, in, there was a main drill instructor... And he was kind of the number two guy. Yeah. Mm. Secondary drill instructor. Sir, Private Washington requests permission to speak with the drill instructor, sir. Speak. Sir, Private Washington requests permission to enter the duty hut, sir. Enter. 
it up. You met our four new replacements yet? Your drill instructors call them the four fucking stooges. Replacements? Man, I ain't no fool. Those fucks won't last a week out there, and anybody who's got to depend on them is already dead meat. I don't believe that. But I'll tell you what, Washington, I, I, I respect your judge of character. Do you think they're any more fucked up than the rest of this shit we got in this goddamn platoon? Oh, no, shit, why don't you just march the whole fucking platoon right here, blow their damn brains out right here, because you're going to end up killing all of us, what's man? I'm not the goddamn one, Washington, that's killing these people. It's you, asshole. You're the one. Not me. That's bullshit. Bullshit! Let me tell you something, Washington. I've got one hell of a shitty goddamn job here. They send me 60 to 80 buckets of civilian shit and expect me to train them to be combat goddamn ready Marines. I've got to send these people to Vietnam. I'm the one that has to send them. They're going to come back in bags. They're going to come back in wheelchairs. They're going to be maimed. They're going to be fucked up people when they come back. It's up to me how they come back. And you, asshole, Washington, you're not motivated. You're not motivated at all. You could fucking help me. But no, nah, hell no. You got your goddamn head up your ass all the time. You're playing your own silly ass goddamn game. But I'll tell you one thing, Dippy. You're going to start playing my game. Are you going to find yourself in combat in Vietnam? And you're going to have Charlie shooting at you from the front and the four stooges are going to be shooting at you from the rear. When I went to, uh, when I took the children to Disneyland Paris, uh, they had, the t- they had a, a section of, um, uh, a section in, in the um, in the park, which was a Toy Story. So they had various Toy Story rides. Now, uh, Arlie Irma played Sarge in the Toy Story films. Oh, right, the, the right. Li- the little plastic... Uh, uh, oh, g- yeah. The green soldiers. That's right. So uh, at the Toy Story uh, ride... Instructions were given out to the children uh, while they were queuing up by uh, Sergeant Hartman. Now, what was this thing you posted, some, like some time back, uh, Stephen, from 1987? Art Full Metal Jacket radio retail track. You, you remember you posted some audio of a few people. Um, yeah. And you on, on YouTube, and it was just audio. So you had like a, a, a video of a tape recorder going around. Yeah, I basically got hold of uh, last year. I think it was. Uh, I came across a a reel to reel tape. Uh, that was that said something like Full Metal Jacket UK radio slots or radio ads. So I got that tape. I didn't have a player to play. Got it converted um, onto a CD. Listen up, you maggots. This is drill instructor Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. You may have seen me in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. You will tune into the Full Metal Jacket competition. You will win Full Metal Jacket posters, T-shirts, books, and jackets until you think it's Christmas. My, my story is I, I remember seeing Full Metal Jacket opening weekend, and everybody in the theater was laughing hysterically at his verbal tirade. And the moment when he makes D'Onofrio lean in and choke himself, I felt the air get sucked out of the room, and the entire mood 
darkened. Mm. It turned on the head of a pin in a matter of like 1.5 seconds. The film went from, you know, darkly comic to just really dark. And I, I remember I was, you know, not yet 17 and I was sitting there, you know, having waited, you know, basically since I first saw The Shining for all the, you know, these years when Shining came out when I was 10 and I was like, interested in this Stanley Kubrick guy and wondering when he was going to make another movie. By the time he puts one out, I'm like a junior in high school. And when that moment happened, I was just sitting there and I, again, I felt like everything change in that one moment of a scene. And I was like, okay, this is why Kubrick, like mm. I, I can't think of one other director, probably one other moment even I've ever sat in a theater where I had that, same type of sensation happen so uh, quickly. Uh, this is where uh, Gomer Pyle uh, did himself in after first doing Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in. Uh, that was uh, that was a pretty hard hitting scene to me. timber of his voice he doesn't have a naturally deep voice so he kind mm. of overcompensating by really <laughs> screaming and that just makes it even bullshit <laughs> but yeah in a way it kind of it, there's something bad about it because there's a lot of people i don't think the, the movie gets it to do it as a great cult uh you know pop culture following but it didn't get it it's it's like uh, the film critics didn't didn't like it that much. It's there's a lot of people uh, who don't like the second half. That whole thing we incessantly hear. Oh, it was yeah. great. First half was great, which it just drives me nuts. Me too. And a lot of it is just people missed Harley Army. People laugh their heads off, and it's not a comedy. That scene where you say Kubrick is like saying, "Hey, wait a minute! In case you think this is a comedy, right. it's not a comedy." That scene that you were just describing, and a lot of people. Missed, he gets shot, and that's the, the, then it goes to jumps to uh, Vietnam, and some people checked out. They 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 missed Ermy in the second half. So it, that's a good point. Yeah, I'd I'd like to look at I'd like to see the original script to Full Metal Jacket because uh, when we hear people talking about Ermy's role in um, in the film, it was kind of developed 
based on the fact that Kubrick, as a true artist, was not sticking to the script and was um, he, he saw potential with uh, all these uh, comments that Ali was coming out with and um, Leon uh, got together with him and they, they, they wrote all his dialogue and his role actually became a lot bigger. You could say that he was the biggest star in the first part, or, you know, more than um, more than Matthew and Vincent. Uh, but that I, I, I doubt that came across in the, the original script in the slightest. But it was because uh, Kubrick being an artist and he, he, he makes things happen when he sees an opportunity that um, that Irma became a star of that film. It would have probably just been a twentieth on twentieth on the list at one point. Right, interesting point. Stay tuned, you worthless maggots. Guys, so, uh, yeah, back in uh, April on the 19th, uh, there were two books released. Of course, Michael Benson's Space Odyssey and um, also uh, Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish intellectual from our good friend uh, Nathan Abrams, a professor at film studies at Bangor University in Wales. And um, just prior to the release of uh, Mr. Benson's book, he did speak at the New York Public Library along with David Mickix, um, who is currently writing a biography about Kubrick for the Yale Jewish Lives series. And um, I think, Mark, you have uh, a, something in the work uh, in, in the works, which I want to get to briefly. But uh, I just want to tell our listeners we're going to have uh, Mr. Benson Uh on an upcoming show pretty soon. Uh, so do stay tuned for that. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I also, I just finished my first book. Peter and Paul go to the beach. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now that was, it. I, I bet, I, I thought James was going to finish that one for me. It's an old Rodney Dangerfield joke. I just finished uh, my first book. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He goes, yeah, now I'm going to read another one. Oh. <laughs> all right so yeah i i'm not sure uh how much can be said about this except uh they were received very well um it was a big deal of course uh uh mike benson's uh book michael benson's book space odyssey got a rave review uh the quote was uh put on the, the cover by tom hanks who of course is a uh, Huge, huge fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Kubrick in general. Um, I did have the chance to uh, meet Michael Benson, uh, as did Mark, back at uh, uh, the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria, Queens, earlier this year. And he's a great guy, and we're going to talk with him on an upcoming episode of Kubrick's Universe. So that was super cool of him to uh, agree to chat with us. And, of course, Nathan is... A, a great guy. I would love to include him in some more stuff with the show as we go forward. Cause Steven and I have chatted with him a few times over various topics. And yeah, I think, I think he's a really cool guy. Very interesting, uh, uh, speaker, you know, for one thing. And, uh, he sure knows his Kubrick. Yeah. And he's got a voice for radio, which is always a bonus. Yeah, he, he definitely does. He really, uh, um, I, I, I like his book and, and there was some, Difficulty in SCAS, if you guys recall, there were some people who were uh, basically showing their true colors as being somewhat or rather anti-Semitic, if you will. And we we actually had to shed a, a couple of members, not many, but there were a few people who were 
saying some rather nasty things about, uh, you know, Nathan's take on Kubrick as a New York Jewish intellectual. Uh, you guys remember that? Yeah. Well, I think it was one person that ended up, they, they just couldn't, they just went on and on and they were getting very, I mean, we don't like, the, the last thing we want to do is kick anyone Of on. course. Somebody was saying some really nasty things. Yeah, as I recall, but the reason I bring it up, I thought there were two. I don't remember more than two. I don't remember the names. I don't know for sure. But, but Nathan handled it. He handled himself so gracefully throughout that whole thing. That's the reason, only reason I bring it up. Because just, yeah, in, in kind of like singing the guy's praises in general as I was trying to, I was really impressed by the way he handled that. Because, look, he had a case to make. He backed it up with his points. His research was all, a lot of it was done with uh, countless hours spent at the archive and speaking with the family. And, um, you know, and what I remember when I, I messaged him, like, really admirable how you handled yourself in that whole situation. And he just kind of sounded like, yeah, you know, nothing I haven't had to do before. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the book came from the right place. You know, he's made it quite clear that it's his take on it. And, and not everybody's going to see the same Jewish um, influences that Nathan brings up in the book. You either, you either get it or you don't. And the thing with Nathan is, he's kind of said, I'm not telling you this is a fact. I'm telling right. you this is my take on it. And that's so important to know that when you're going into a book like that. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting, and it's similar to what ha- what happened months later, which was partially on, on, kind of in a way, on our SCAS page, but it actually flowed into some actual, um, I guess they were newspaper articles. But anyway, Abram got to that a little bit of a feud with Frederick Raphael. Freddie Raphael, yeah, who gave a really scathing review of his book. <laughs> And then Abrams had a follow-up, and then he had a follow-up to the follow-up. It was very, yep. it was quite comical. I don't remember. Do you remember the details a little better than I do? Well, the fact that uh, Nathan um, got an email off Raphael. In fact, let's just let Nathan tell the story. Well, all, all of these fans, you know, that have been devouring your book, Stanley Kubrick, New York Jewish Intellectual, which was released earlier in 2018. Um, we're going to ask a kind of generic question in terms of how the book has uh, fared for you critically, uh, critically rather, and in terms of sales. Are you pleased with it? Um, well, I'm extremely pleased with the reception it's got. Um, yeah, you know, apart from a few naysayers, it's 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 you know it's it's received um, really good reviews, and 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 you know, it's not even the academic journals yet. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased with the reception it's got in kind of um non-academic places you know village voice and yeah one example so yeah i'm quite chuffed i mean you know i i I do go out on a limb in a bit in terms of my interpretation i you know it's not a standard play it safe book Mm -hmm. and uh, i know some people get upset with the kind of spin i put on it but um fuck (laughs) them stanley would have said but you know um sorry I'm I'm yeah. I'm pleased that people can see what I'm trying to do in there, whether I they agree it. with every line or not. I I totally got it, and yeah, um, and I was really pleased with the hostile review from Frederick Raphael, because you know what, 
you know what? At least he, at least he, at least he read it or some of it. Can he, can he tell us a bit? Uh, can he tell our listeners about that, or is that a bit? Uh, well, it's out there, isn't it? It's in the public. Yeah, I mean, if he, if you Google uh, Frederick Raphael and um, Captain, he's no Captain in Commentary Magazine. Um, you know, Commentary Magazine is a right wing Jewish magazine. Okay. Um, and and really, they shouldn't have asked Frederick Raphael to review it. He's he's got skin in the game, mm-hmm. uh, to quote a uh, black Klansman. And uh, um, you know, he just really got upset with um, my um, questioning of the veracity of some of the recollections in Eyes Wide Open, and uh, just penned a very hostile review. And uh, <laughs> so I came across that, and then to cap it off, um, he emailed me. <laughs> And said, "Oh, here's the Love unedited it. version," and um, and signed off with, "On on no account imagine that I look forward to hearing from you." That was there. You have uh, Nathan uh, telling us the story himself, <laughs> and um, that was from a, a a recent chat we had with Professor Abrams, and and yeah, that was really cool of him to share that with us. Nathan's next book, I believe, is on Eyes Wide Shut. And yes, I think sir. he said there's a chapter specifically on the Raphael script. Well, no, I'll, sure. yeah, I'll just add one thing that as as we understand it, if I'm not mistaken, Stephen, help me out. But there uh, there were no lines of communication between Nathan and Leon Vitali. And Nathan had really wanted to speak with Leon about Eyes Wide Shut. And then I think he actually... You put them in touch, right, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, basically, when we when we spoke to Nathan for our uh, <clears throat> for our interview, um, it was about the Burning Secret uh, yeah. screenplay, wasn't it? And we, we asked uh, Nathan who he'd spoken to for Eyes Wide Shut, and he gives a big list of names, uh, all the names that we know that's in the uh, oh. final credit roll. And then we said, "What about where, where's uh, Leon?" Because obviously, Leon. I mean, if you know a bit about Kubrick, uh, you know that Leon was quite a big part in that film he had he had four or five roles he told us didn't he we, we only know about mm-hmm. the, the red when he played red cloak uh so yeah so nathan had, hadn't actually spoke to him so yeah I, we kind of hooked hooked nathan and leon up and um they, they did an interview and that that hopefully will make leon's interview will hopefully make the uh printing run uh which is happening in april i think april next yeah. year and we've also yeah. we've also got an interview uh, a little segment of nathan talking about that as well and I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners about your next book, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick and the Making of His Final Film, because it is due for release in 2019, as we understand it. Is there anything you can tell our listeners about what to expect with the book? Yep, yep. Um, um, so if Freddie was uh, unhappy with uh, my previous book, I think he'll be unhappier with his next one. Um, <laughs> what we attempt to do is the first kind of book length, like serious book length study of the film's life from when Stan, we think Stanley first thought of doing it. Um, so we have a whole chapter on where we argue that, that when Stanley started thinking about making films, he started thinking about adapting Traum novella. Um, and then we look at its influence through the films that he did make through. Um, and then chapter two is an in-depth look at the screenplay mm-hmm. and the writing of the screenplay. And then thereafter, we go through pre-production, a chapter on pre-production, production, production, post-production, reception and afterlife, 
And then we cap it off with our own kind of new interpretation of the film based on what we've learned, a new reading of the film. Um, it's a long reading. It's like a 15,000 word. Um, it, it's not shot by shot, but it's, it's the keys, non-submersible units and connective tissue. Mm. And, um, you know, it's based on going through the archives, finding material that I don't, we don't think anyone else has seen. Um, spoke to quite a lot of people, including some of the actors in the orgy sequence. Um, yeah, tell us about just, uh, your, your research. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really interests me, I mean, my training originally is a historian, so I just really wanted to kind of nail down what was done when mm. and what, 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 as far as we could find out, was true and wasn't true. I mean, there's a lot of rumors about that movie because that was the first movie Kubrick made in the internet age. And, um, um, you know, what was a really interesting exercise was let's just try and reconstruct how the shoot happened. You know, what was shot first? Where was it shot? Who was there? What happened? You know, we couldn't go into every bit of excruciating detail, um, but we, we've tried to give a flavor of what it, what he did when he did it and, 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 and how things came about. I mean, what's really interesting is how much I learned about the creative process. Um, so Stanley might start off with one idea, but by the time it gets to the screen, you know, it's, it's changed. Um, because he didn't quite know what he was looking for until someone gave it to him. Mm. And, uh, um, so yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting process of, you know, rarely do you get that amount of words. I think what have we got, we had about 90,000 words to just look at one film. Jeez. And obviously we bring in other movies, but you know, I wrote 110, 120,000 words on all of his films. And, uh, can you tell, can you tell our listeners some of the folks that you interviewed? Yeah, we spoke to, well, there's Jan Harlan, Tony Fruin, Peter Cavacciuti, who um, was the second Steadicam operator, Lisa Leone, who did set design locations, um, um, uh, Brian Cook, uh, Larry Smith, uh, Jocelyn Pook, Yolanda Snaith. She was the choreographer that choreographed the orgy sequence. Mm-hmm. We didn't physically speak, but we had an email conversation with Todd Field, Abigail Good, who played the mysterious lady, um, some of the other actors and actresses I had correspondence or spoke to who were in the orgy sequence. Um, all in all, um, Julian Senior, Rick Sennett, Tim Everett, people who work for Warner Brothers. Um, all in all, they're about oh, Dominic Harlan. Um, mm-hmm. Jan's nephew plays the piano, did some photography. So all in all, about, no, he didn't do some photography. His brother did the photography. We did about 20, 20 original interviews. I mean, James B. Harris, I spoke to again, um, his producing partner. Yeah, of course. When did you uh, speak with him last? Um, and what did you cover? I, I had a quick conversation. I spoke to him originally about when I, about Eyes Wide Shut, about Schnitzler and, 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 and when he first thought he read it. And then I spoke to him about Burning Secret more recently, obviously to do with the discovery of the script to try and ver- to verify it. Um, um, so yeah, we did, we did a lot of interviews and, and again, went through those archives and, um, went through boxes. Um, and I'm not sure other people have been through. Um, so we found some material there, and hopefully what we've done is, for example, is clear up that endless debate of whether it was finished or not. Um, and, uh, um, you know, what remained to be done. I think one of the chapters that will be of interest to, 
um, you know, the Kubrick Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society members is clearing up that debate of what remained to be done after Stanley died. Mm-hmm. And and how substantively that changed the film. I mean, we don't think it substantively changed the film at all. Um, you know, these were these were tweaks. And right. of course, had Stanley lived, he would have tweaked with it more. You know, maybe color grading here or there, or temp mix. You know, music mix. But but there was nothing in the in the, what in the instructions that was left after his death that indicated. Um, well, not instructions. He didn't quite. Um, you know what was left to do after he died that indicated substantive narrative changes. Um, it, so yeah. I think hopefully we try and clear up that debate as far as we can, although there'll still be skeptics out there. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting project. Obviously I co-wrote this with Robert Kolker and, you know, if you're familiar with Robert Kolker's work, he might be worth talking to. Robert has spent a lifetime studying film and has just an encyclopedic knowledge of the world of film. And, um, you know, we had this nice kind of symbiotic relationship where, um, you know, history and archives are kind of what I, I, I love. And he has this encyclopedic knowledge of film and it blended really nicely. Um, mm-hmm. I think to produce, to produce a nice rounded appreciation. Yeah. And of course, the interesting thing about working with a co-author is you've got to back and forth and you disagree over things and you've got to find the middle ground between what you're saying and you kind of challenge one another. Um, sure. So, so that, it was an interesting process and, and, um, and hopefully I think, I hope people will appreciate the result at least, you know, if it isn't perfect, that it will be the book. I think people will have to go to for the in-depth take on eyes wide shut. So, yeah. Um, you have yeah, a ballpark uh, 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 time frame on its release date? Maybe? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we just pretty much copy editing it now. That's in the, So that will go back to the publisher that will then get sent the proofs, uh, which we'll do in the new year with the index. So we're looking at an April, I think, April release. Um, and hopefully we're going to be able to do some things around that. It was right after the call that you got on the on the case as it were and um and and uh nathan will probably you know uh uh do everything short of move mountains to get uh uh the 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 contributions from leon into his book even if it means he has to delay publishing it sounded like he was that intent on getting his his uh leon's contributions and it was just so cool to see that Right after we spoke with Nathan about the the burning secret uh, discovery of that script, which we'll get to, and also the uh, the auction, but like no sooner had we ended the call that you were like getting those two guys connected. Like you, you deserve a lot of credit for making that happen, Stephen. The thing was when we asked Nathan who who he'd spoken to uh, as you know contributors to the book, he spoke to obviously Jan Hall, and who was the producer on the film, Tony Frewin. Long time assistant. Uh, spoke to James B. Harris, um, Brian Cook, who's, you know, these are guys that have worked with him for, worked with Kubrick for four or five films. Uh, spoke to Todd Field, who, you know, who, who was one of the actors in the film. Um, so it, it was reeling off this long list of names, uh, Larry Smith, the, um, the cinematographer, and it was like, Leon's got to be in there, because I think Leon has probably got as, as much to say on Eyes Wide Shut as anyone has. So, yeah, what a fantastic thing that they finally got together. Yeah. 
in a way, it was kind of a it was a big deal for us. Like here we are making our little contributions, and that contribution on your part ended up being a a a, a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, I'm, like, I'm really looking go. forward to that book, that as wide shut book. I'm really oh, looking forward too. to it. Definitely. Mm. What we gonna and say? There'll be there'll also there'll be a movie on Eyes Wide Shut. Yes. By Tony's and Sierra next year. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, tentatively known as SK13. SK13. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so yeah, guys, also the uh, in the month of April, after we had the uh, those great books come out from uh, Michael Benson and Nathan Abrams, on the 28th of April, of course, um, there was 2001 A Space Odyssey performed with live orchestra at the Royal Festival Hall. And the soundtrack was performed in real time by the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by André de Rider with the Philharmonia Voices, Ian Roscow, Matt Melia, Nathan Abrams, and our very own Stephen Rigg were uh, uh, in attendance. Yeah, I went down to that event on the 28th of April this year, uh, and I met for the first time some of our fellow SCAS mates, uh, Ian, Matt, and Nathan. Uh, and I think Nathan's brother was there as well. Yeah, we were at something to eat and then went into the uh, into the Royal Festival Hall in London. Uh, and it was a fantastic concert. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Wow. And I'm glad I went. That was, uh, the, was that the first time you got to hang out with um, uh, Ian and Matt Mellier? Yeah, yeah, that was the first time I met them. Uh, all lovely chaps. How did you enjoy the concert? Oh, it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, it was just kind of uh, sat down, had a great seat, and uh, yeah, it, it was just great. Um, I think the, the biggest moment of uh, extreme pleasure was when the voices came in, which I guess was the Philharmonia uh, mm. voices. Uh, I think there was about 50 or 60 people there, uh, and their voices, recreating the voices from the original recordings, it was amazing. I mean, the whole the whole music thing was it must have been a seventy piece orchestra and about fifty in the um, in the in the um, in the choral section. Yeah, it was brilliant, absolutely great. It's hard to wow. describe, I, I find it hard to describe by words. It's one of those situations. I'm not the best at describing things or using words at the best of times, but um, something like that. Uh, all I will say is you, you should have been there. If I'm not mistaken, Mark, you got to see it when uh, uh, the, 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 the film was screened at Lincoln Center in New York City, but that was later in the year, on, uh, on, in the middle of September, right? September 15th, was it? Yeah, so it's much later. Uh, first time I had ever heard it with live music, and it was awesome, just like Stephen said. We were sitting way over to the right where all the bases were, Mm. And that just went right through you. Sure. That whole rumble. And then uh, they had the voices, which were also the highlight up in the balcony from each side. So you're getting the stereophonic sound. And then as kind of an encore, they played the entire Blue Danube waltz through the credits and beyond. Yeah. And to hear the whole piece in its entirety was a very nice way to end the evening. Oh, wow. So, I just a little artistic it. license with the uh, the soundtrack that Kubrick chose to do yes. the entire Blue Danube at the end. That's cool. I didn't but, know they did that. Uh, Joe Berger, the guy who did uh, Barry Lyndon with live music, said they did it because 
Uh, there wasn't actually that much music in 2001 compared right. to a, a actual concert of classical music. So they wanted to add that in for the classical music fans. And while it's wonderful, it's just a very expensive experience to have because you're hiring 100 musicians sure. in this great hall. But yeah, boy, I would. there's no better way to experience a Kubrick movie than with a live orchestra. Agreed. I guess I can say this, that uh, there is the possibility of Barry Lyndon being done again with, with live music at, uh, at the New York Symphony Hall. The problem is that it's such a long movie uh, that union rules require the musicians to have a break and they can't be on stage for more than 90 minutes. And, so, God, uh, see, Kubrick himself would have a thing or two to say about that. <laughs> I, I will just say, because I got to see, with you, we saw Barry Lyndon with live orchestra at King's Theater in Brooklyn last year, like, and, and there were no uh, excess intermissions or required breaks for the musicians that I recall. And uh, we, we were pretty close. I wasn't sitting right next to you, but we were right up front. I was by the Irish... Uh, portion of the orchestra, the Irish musicians. No, nothing is definite yet, but I think actually if we do interview joe at this time which you yeah you have been pushing me to set something up it might help him with publicity to kind of move things along we you offered that and mark uh mark and i uh re-upped at uh the film worker premiere at the metrograph in may and uh, joe was there for that that was the first time i got to hang with him and he is a really cool guy i like joe Berger a lot um, just from my general vibe, like when we talked. Um, yes, and you got to he's, like a, he's a music and a movie geek. I mean, it's my kind of people. You also got to meet, I think, Adam and Leon, right? All of that oh, same. Adam. Oh, yeah. And Leon, of course. Hey, and Tony Ziera took the pictures of... Uh, and Tony, yeah. Tony took the photos that went up in SCAS of me. That was in early May. We'll just get that little bit of news out of the way because it's not really news. It's just something cool that... I get to say happened to me this year, but yeah, you were there. That was a great night. It was a very pleasant, uh, kind of like a warm night. It was a little early in the year to have such a, a nice warm night as that. Do you recall? Cause we were just like hanging out on the sidewalk for a couple hours and everybody that wanted to talk to Leon kind of came and went and we were just there talking and it ended up just being you, me, Adam, Tony, uh, and of course, Leon, and I think like maybe two other people were hanging outside the theater towards the end of the night. And we were just yeah. having a conversation. And that all comes about because of the podcast. It's 
podcast. It's a nexus. That oh, that's right. Oh, oh my gosh. All right. Yeah, no, I will tell that story because that was awesome. It was thanks to you, Mark, because I think Tony had come over to us and said, did you enjoy the film? And we were like, yes. And he introduced himself and I just said, hi, I'm Jason. And Mark goes, this is Jason Furlong from the Kubrick's Universe podcast. And Tony Ziera, like, his eyes light up and he whips out his cell phone <laughs> and he's like, I've got every one of your episodes downloaded. And I was like, what? Like, Dude, that was all you. You made that moment happen. That was so cool of you. <laughs> yeah, I was very happy to be doing the introductions to these various people because I don't think everybody knew that everybody else was coming. Right, right. Well, Tony, again, talk about just a cool, very down-to-earth person. I really enjoyed uh, talking with him. And um, and then, yeah, he he took my cell phone and snapped those pictures of uh, me and Leon basically chain-smoking the night away back when I, uh, when I still <laughs> smoked cigarettes because I gave those up like a month later. Um, right. Is my only really amazing news of the year, but <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was a really cool night. And then I guess it was what was it prior to that where uh, uh, our friend James Lechner, uh, who's great guy and SCAS member, huge 2001 fan and model maker professionally, he uh, he and I met up at the Comic Con in Parsippany where Keir DeLay and Dan Richter were. And uh, that was the first time I got to meet Dan, but we had interviewed Dan uh, in the end of 2017. And so it was cool to meet him. And uh, I did get Keir to uh, wish my mom a happy 70th birthday on a little recording he made for my phone. And we're, we're going to, Still see if that irons in the fire and try to get him to come on the show. But uh, then on the 3rd of May, uh, I want to hear from Mark because I'm pretty sure he was at the uh, the opening of the exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York, which showcased Kubrick's early years as a staff photographer for Look Magazine. And uh, the exhibit is called Through a Different Lens. Uh, due to popular demand, the museum has extended it until January 6th of 2019. So, Mark, tell us about uh, when you got to be there the first time and what you saw. Well, I didn't have very high expectations for it because I had a book called, I think, Kubrick, Darkness and Light. And there are OK photos, but not when you compare them to really brilliant photographers. But uh, I did love the approach that the museum took to this exhibition. They have thousands of his negatives and they chose 300 of them to be in this exhibit. And they decided to curate them as to the things that Kubrick learned that later helped him into his career of being a director. Uh, if you remember, a few weeks before, or maybe it was several weeks before the um, Museum of the City of New York exhibit, we in SCAS uh, had a, I guess you can call it a contest, whatever the, whatever word you want to use, yeah. 
and to pick to pick our favorite or whatever the best or a favorite Kubrick photograph. So we actually did um, uh, like it was two weeks, I think. Do you remember this, right? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. 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 It was interactive, and we started with me going through thousands of pictures, mm-hmm. and then we started with like a hundred and it was a kind of a random number. It was like 115 that I nominated, and then we just put it up to to vote. And we had several rounds. We first had, you know, everybody choose the top ten, and then we whittled it down. I don't remember exactly how it went, but the point is that it took a little. It it it, it we got people involved, which is kind of hard to do to get mm-hmm. interactive things, especially ones yeah. that last a couple of weeks. And we had, you know, I made pictures of the brackets, and then we had the final 16, and then we voted for the final eight and we had no idea that this exhibit was coming up as a matter of fact it was announced while our little contest that's correct yeah wow it was just this oh my god we're in the middle of doing and remember how we scrambled at we when we finished we had andrew fritch help and we put you you made you and andrew made the um the video the video and we wanted to get the museum to use it but they didn't, and you know I can understand that they they can make their own video. Who, who are we? Um, but they got kind of got to know us later, as you guys can can expand on. But uh, that was an incredible coincidence, and we were like, hurry up and hurry. we want to get uh we want to get them to use we want to finish the video so they'll use it, but they didn't use it. I started out by just you know getting a camera and learning how to take pictures and learning how to print pictures and learning how to build a dark room and learning how to do all the technical things and. Uh, so on and so on, and then finally trying to find out how you could uh, sell pictures and become a, you know, would it be possible to be a professional photographer? And it was a case of over a period of, say, from the age of 13 to uh, 17, uh, you might say, uh, going through step by step by myself without anybody really helping me, the problem solving of being a photographer. I had developed myself as a photographer, and uh, prior to graduating high school, I'd act, I had sold uh, two st- picture stories to look. I sold them two picture stories and a, and a photograph of a news dealer sitting on 170th Street in the Grand Concourse right across two blocks away from Taft High School uh, with all the headlines saying uh, Roosevelt you know, dies or FDR dead. And he was sitting there looking uh, depressed. And uh, they liked this picture and used it in a... Uh, a whole series about Roosevelt, and it was sort of the final picture of the of the series. That I then backed into this uh, uh, fantastically good job at the age of 17. Uh, well, I was a I was apprentice photographer for six months, and then I became a uh, staff photographer, and I was there for four years. And of course, that would have been the you know the period I'd spent in college, and I think that the uh, you know the things what I learned and uh, the practical experience uh, in every respect including photography what I learned in, in that four-year period exceeded what I could have learned in school in March 2018 the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society held a competition to allow fans to vote for their favorite photograph taken by Kubrick during his years working for Look magazine Although there are many thousands of photos taken by Kubrick during this formative period, SCAS admin and co-founder James Marinaccio 
researched and compiled over 200 photos for consideration. Voting remained open. Members made many tough choices. And ultimately, one photo had to win. We hope you enjoy this video of The Final 16. But that, that was that was cool. And we what was the winner? The I don't remember the, the gal the gal on the librarian on carrying the books down the staircase. Yeah. One of them and there was a woman walk he we took a shot of a woman walking away. Yeah. It was near the square garden. I think that made the last two or three, didn't it? Maybe three or four. Yep. Yep. And I remember looking through all those photographs. I didn't choose them. But he did a small it was only there were only like three or four photos. But he shot um he did not shot with a camera, not with a gun. He shot. He yeah. shot uh, Alfred Hitchcock on a a train. Yeah, and he was, you know, he was well before it was before Fear and Desire. So that that was an incredible find. Kubrick shoots Hitchcock. Stephen, do you remember back on uh, May seventh, the guys over at Movie Geeks, our friends Jamie Duvall? Yes, I do. Yeah, that was that was a uh, quite a, uh, an amazing uh, occurrence in Kubrick's universe. Uh, it was an interview uh, that Tim Carhill did for Rolling Stone magazine in nineteen eighty seven, which was during the uh, Full Metal Jacket uh, kind of publicity tour. And yeah, a great interview. Uh, Stanley talking two hours candidly uh, about. Making Full Metal Jacket and other things, yeah. And that had been previously unknown for uh, most Kubrick fans, at least for the better part of the last, like, uh, 30 years. And uh, there it was. But on that same day, uh, we got the chance to speak to uh, Vincent Labruto, who is the author of pretty much the definitive biography on Kubrick. And that all happened thanks to my buddy James. So I want to uh, ask James about that because you, you apparently were friends with uh, the man who now wants us to call him Uncle Vinny for some time. How did you guys get to know each other? Um, at the, well, I mean, friends to some for a little while in 2001 at the, um, the private screening of AI in the Time Warner building in New York City when I had successfully gotten Kubrick inducted into the Bronx Walk of Fame and met Katharina, and then she was over for that, and then she went back home. And then later that same year, she, she and Jan and Christian and Anya and Philip Hobbs and Wendy Carlos, a couple other people all went to this screening of AI before it was released in the offices of Warners and Vincent Labruda was there so I met him and then we exchanged numbers and we had dinner one night and he lived in Mount Vernon which is the very first it borders the Bronx the very first town in Westchester County right and just had like a, a Kubrick chat James had you read his book oh, at yeah. that time oh yeah well yes uh, I had read his book oh before I met him um what time did, what year did it come out? I probably did. Uh, it was like 90, 97. Uh, no, the original uh, first edition was 97. Yeah, I have uh, the hard, I still have the hard cover. Yeah. But you know what? 
Why didn't I get him to autograph it? Duh. All right, let me go. I'm just going to be right back. Okay. Go into my time machine. I'll be right back. But um, we used the, uh, all the addresses. All the when you guys drove around the Bronx that time. That's right. Two times. All those addresses came from from his book. From Uncle Vinny's book. That's right. Is it Cousin Vinny or Uncle Vinny? Oh, well, I, I started calling Cousin Vinny from the movie. From the movie. I think I called him Uncle Vinny as a goof when we uh, interviewed him because he was just so casual and he, and he insisted on not being called even Vincent, let alone Mr. Labruto. He kept saying, you know, please call me Vinny. Call me Vinny. And he's just got a real genuine New York type of candor and and ease of self, you know. He was just he is who he is. And there was a moment when I think I made a joke about, okay, Uncle Vinny, and it, it cracked him up and he was like, Oh, I like that. Well then on the uh, 13th of May, of course, the 71st International Con Film Festival was held at Palais de Festival in Cannes, and uh, in attendance uh, were Kier Delay, Katharina Kubrick, Jan Harlan, and Christopher Nolan, uh, where, you know, they showed 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, the unrestored, a.k.a. the Nolan print version, but it was shown at Cannes in 2018. Again, a pretty, pretty momentous year, for all things Kubrick. I don't think Kubrick ever had a film shown at Cannes. And there was 2001, the 50th anniversary of the film. You guys remember when that was that news was hitting the interwebs? Yeah, cool. it was kind of right, confusing. They yeah. marked it as uh, the unrestored version. And we didn't know what they meant by that description. Right. I, still, well, there, I still don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's one of those things that did gin up some uh, controversy as to what people thought of uh, the Nolan print, quote unquote, because lots of Kubrick fans have very strong opinions one way or the other about that director. But uh, I guess it's better to just talk about our impressions, because I know Mark saw it. Um and I got to see it uh, twice uh, this year. What, Mark, what was your impression when you saw the so-called unrestored version? And where did you see it? I saw it at the Village East, which is a very old theater. Mm-hmm. And it actually had a, a Jewish cornerstone. And I was wondering if Kubrick's grandfather might have gone to see a play there. It was originally a playhouse. Uh, the colors were awesome. But having gotten so used to digital, I was shocked by all the scratches and the dust, which had crept in over just a period, I think, one weekend. Mm -hmm. I saw it like three days after it came out. They also had to squeeze it a little to fit on that particular screen. But uh, the sound was awesome. Uh, Afterwards, you know, a number of people from Scott's saw that particular screening and they went into very one guy went into really detailed analysis of he knew all the individual prints yeah yeah that were in circulation and i remember that uh yeah there's some very detailed critiques of what makes a good print yeah and the end the bottom line is it's 
still 2001 and no matter how you see it it's still incredible but i guess i would say i was disappointed in almost all of the screenings that i saw for different reasons because mm. they've never were perfect like i you know you want perfection yeah in new york it's more expensive to make a 70 millimeter print is one thing I learned. And so everybody shares the same one print here on the East Coast. And that print was so brutal that at least now we have new prints to work with. And they, so as much as I complain, they were a vast improvement, are a vast improvement over what was going around as a film print. I, the whole thing might be moot when now that we're switching over to digital. But uh, I'm glad to have that they made new prints. Uh, but I think what I realize is any print gets scratched up pretty quickly in real life. And, you know, maybe these 70 millimeter projectors are even more prone to scratching and get letting dust in. I saw it twice at the Museum of the Moving Image this year. And... Um... The first was uh, when it had only been out for the first time I saw it was when it had only been out for a couple weeks or less. It wasn't like opening weekend, and the the print was 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 like Marcus saying, very scratchy and a lot of dust and like seemed like particulate matter kept flying by on the screen. And on the left hand side throughout the first couple of reels, there was a constant black line that ran vertically from the top to the bottom of the screen in every shot. And then I saw it again about a month later at the Museum of the Moving Image, and um, it, it had gotten even worse. Um, that said, the, um, the sound uh, quality that I, I experienced when I, seeing that was just unlike anything I've experienced in a movie theater anywhere else. There, there's that moment when, uh, uh, gosh, when uh, uh, William Sylvester is walking at, on the space station, and you briefly hear, like you can hear it on the on the Blu-ray, you hear an announcement: a blue lady's cashmere sweater has been found in the restroom. It can be claimed. At the front desk, when you're when did you notice, Mark? When you were sitting there in the theater, it actually it sounded so extricated from the rest of the auditory components that are happening in that scene that yes. it actually sounded like the movie theater was making an announcement that a woman's <laughs> blue. It was incredible. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, extremely cool. Because that, that, that at that moment, my brain is going, "Wow." I'm going back 50 plus years in time before I'm even thinking about it. like Kubrick really put thought into that, like how that would sit. You know, again, as an audio geek, I'm thinking about how many, you know, trials and errors did he go through before he found it? Okay. I want it, you know, up and to the left. Cause when you watch the film with this sound being, uh, as incredible as it was again, the print, eh, but the sound was such that when I saw it the second time, uh, and then when I saw the, um, 
the IMAX presentation later in the year, I noticed it had the same thing. If you watch the scene with the watering hole, when Kubrick has the camera so that the uh, watering hole is dead center, the sound of the splashing is coming right from the middle of the movie screen. When the man apes are off to the right side with the watering hole, it's coming from the right side of the movie screen. If it's a, a wider shot, the watering hole sounds like it's further away and so forth. It, it's incredible level of detail. So what is the ultimate version that's currently out there? We've got the restored version, which that's already available as a 70 mil print, I believe. And then we've got the new 4K version that Leon worked on. Uh, so... If you was going to screen it to um, your friends and said, like, come and watch 2001, what version would you like to show them? Would you show them the 4K? If what I saw in IMAX is the 4K, James and I were talking about this. We're trying to figure out, so what's this IMAX? Is it basically the same print, you know, transferred to an IMAX screen that Leon worked on and he talked with us about that's going to be the 4K uh, disc release, and as far as we could figure, it was. But there are some people, like in SCAS, who are debating and saying, "No, it's a, it's taken from one of the Nolan prints and enhanced elements and stuff." I don't know, uh, one way or the other. But I can only tell you what I saw. And the 4K print in IMAX was easily the best version I have ever seen of the film. I've seen it several times in the movie theater. I got to see it in 70 mil back in the late 90s at the Wang Center in Boston when I lived there, and it, it was incredible print. I'll never forget it. The uh, conversations on in the Facebook group were fierce. There were just so many people interested in talking about it, and it was a little... Ch I mean, I, I one, one of the things about running a, a Facebook group is I hate when... Well, not hate, that's a strong word, hate, but I don't, I don't like when there's a fresh topic and loads of people like to start the topic with their own post up top and and just keep starting new threads on the same topic. Yeah, it would be yeah. great if everybody could just be wrangled into one into one um and you there you could do that on message boards. You can't do that in Facebook though. You can combine when you're an admin on a message board you can do that. You can't do it in Facebook. I was trying my best to say we well, you know, there were let's not start 36 separate conversations on the same thing because nobody's going to see what you're saying. And, I, I, you know, it was a little, it, it worked a little bit, but I remember I waited to a certain point and then I took screenshots of all of them and combined them into one giant PDF because it's, I think it's going to be something to read. You, there were very people in the know. There were, there were a lot of people, including Gordon and uh, Filippo and uh, Gordon State. I should. We have to remember we have an audience. Gordon Stainforth, who is the assistant editor on Shining, Filippo Overi, the author of Stanley and Me, and, uh, and lots of other people. I'm sorry to keep names out, but who really know it lots more than I do. Yeah, right. I, I, my head starts to spin. But anyway, I combined all the one, one giant PDF, and I just had to pick a point to do it because it, it kept going a little further so that we just have an historical record of those conversations because. Mm. And people are in disagreement. Like your point is, there's no definitive answer. You, you know, people were disagreeing, and to, to this day, I don't, I don't really get the difference. I saw the IMAX version, and I was, I was seeing things I had never noticed before. Yeah, man. yeah. Man. The place where Bowman is eating in, in the, in the bedroom at the end, has wheels on it. 
I never noticed that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Why did it have wheels on it? That was odd. But I, and 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 twenty other things like that. Uh, sorry, yeah, there's a delay. I noticed Bowman's smile when he successfully got in the airlock. Oh, I'd never yeah. seen that through 100 viewings before. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that I think the 50th anniversary release of 2001 was a bit of a mess. Because personally, I wanted to hear that there was a, a definitive version being released in the cinema, and that was the same version that was going to be on a, on a DVD and Blu-ray, and I got totally confused by the whole release of 2001. Yeah, so, good point. That, now, that's probably me being a 48-year-old person who doesn't understand <laughs> modern <laughs> technology. Fine. But, you know, I, I mean, I understand aspect ratios and things like that, fairly technical <laughs> things. But I, I just feel, in hindsight, after this conversation, that the release, the re-release was a bit of a mess. It was a debacle, yeah. But it should have been a perfect situation. That This greatest film, this is its 50th right. anniversary, let's do it right. And it yeah. just seemed to trickle out in bits and pieces. Yeah. But I, I have to agree with uh, what you said, Stephen. It was a bit of a mess, just, the way the rollout was handled. Just to finish up on the IMAX, uh, I saw it twice in one day at two different old IMAXs. And the first one, like, I don't know the technology, but I think the projector that decodes the data stream was behind the times. And so there was very sharp edges and artifacting. Mm. And then at the second one, again, you're at the mercy of the particular theater. Uh, there was so much dust that got into the gate. It was ridiculous. It kind of ruined it for me. Not it couldn't have been as bad as uh, uh, the print of Barry Lyndon that we saw at Alamo Draft House <laughs> in Yonkers. No, nothing could be that bad. You remember that, Mark? <laughs> yes. You can accept that to a certain degree because it's an old print and they're not re-releasing it. But you know, right? Let, let's do things right. I mean, when, when um, it's when, like you said, yeah, the most important film of all time on the fiftieth anniversary of the release, and like, why would you botch the rollout? It was posted in the group by, I forget whom, that uh, weekend that it was, you know, a shocking bit of good news that a 50-year-old Kubrick film was outperforming the brand new releases from uh, the generic Hollywood machine from that same weekend that uh, the re-release occurred in select theaters or something like that. Or maybe it was like in major markets, I forget. It wasn't across the board globally, but uh, it was still a with this release yeah. when is it coming is it coming is it not coming people are i know here we are and they they, they don't i mean the people who ordered it on amazon early got their copies and now and i read something i read something in skaza yesterday that um people saying that the the uk release of the 4k blu-ray hasn't got any problems with it but the uh, rest of the world have got glitches in there or something mm. get a bush baby <laughs> shall, shall we move on yeah 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 because yeah. i'm going to get really oh, angry in a minute and smash everything up can i just say i give warner brothers all the credit in the world for how much they supported stanley uh while he was making films but it just shows without stanley and leon there supervising the release how messed up it gets well when we when we spoke with leon earlier this year he i was pretty sure that i mean he did say that he was brought on board to help do the color timing correction and oversee the transfer to 4k for this 
released it came out. So logically, when people were discussing the IMAX release, this print that was going to be an IMAX, and they were saying, oh, it's definitely not the uh, Nolan print. I was just going on, you know, my recollection of talking with Leon when it sounded like, well, why wouldn't the IMAX print be the one that Leon worked on? Why would they take the dusty old Nolan print and put that on an IMAX screen? But some people wanted to debate that and say, no, it's not. The, the, the one that's coming on home video is from the Nolan. I give up. Yeah, in May and June, we had uh, some interesting stuff. On the 26th of May, uh, the legendary Greg Nicotero, uh, he developed a, a, a full-scale replica of the EVA pod and it was displayed at uh, the Escape Velocity convention. And then on the 31st of May, of course, the uh, accompanying uh, book to go with the MCNY exhibit called Through a Different Lens was released by Toshin Publishing. Toshin have done a few other uh, Kubrick-focused books, and they're always incredible. Uh, And then there were two really cool events in June. We had the Banger Symposium, uh, hosted by Nathan Abrams. Uh, That event was called 2001 Beyond 50. And as you guys mentioned earlier, the list of uh, prominent speakers that appeared there was uh, incredible to say the least. And on the 27th of June, probably the biggest thing that happened on the interwebs for a while was the, the rare video of uh, Japanese filmmaker Junichio uh, speaking with Kubrick on the phone. And um, I wonder if there are any of those four events that kind of stick out with, with any of you guys. James, I'll ask you first. The, um, Junichio, however you say Junichio, it. yeah. Um, uh, like an hour and ten minutes. It was somebody... I don't. I forget the source, but it was on eBay, and um, like, like a year ago, maybe, or 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 somebody was selling it, and I think Bob Falfa was in our group. Was, was uh-huh. telling, he was telling me on the side how he was aware of it, and uh, either he bought a copy or he he, he saw the the uh, you know it being sold on eBay a while ago, but. Well, basically, what I'm getting at is whoever was selling it on eBay at some point said, you know, I'm done with that. Now I'm just going to put it up on YouTube. So the quality is really good. And it's a, it's just um, a behind the scenes insightful. It's it's really unique. And the, the group, when that happened, it, the group blew up. Yeah. People were going crazy about it. it yeah. There was no warning. Like, what in the world is this? But I was going to ask, like, Mark, out of those things that I brought up between May and and June, the uh, the Toshin book, the Banger Symposium, Junichio, and um, uh, Nicotero's EVA pod going on display. You have I'm any? Loving, yes, I'm loving the uh, Bangor Symposium on our podcast, and I think that's such an incredible panel that they got together in the third episode of our podcast. And uh, about the I. The uh, MCNY photography exhibit, it was such a success that it may travel, so some other people may get to see it as an exhibition. But you really should get the book, the Tashin book, 
before it goes out of print because these things do go out of print. In a way, it's better than the exhibition because it has a lot more photos. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's easier to experience them all sitting down in your easy chair as opposed to having to walk through the museum in a two-hour session. It's really, and like every other Tashin book, the reproduction quality is excellent. Mark, is, is, is it quite a large book? Yeah, it is. Because cause I remember uh, when you interviewed Sean Corcoran at the uh, MCNY, um, he mentioned that there was a few photos that were had been reproduced larger in the book than they were actually in the exhibition, which was interesting. That's true. It was actually easier to see it in the book than looking at the print yeah. on the wall for yeah. a lot of them. And like you have to deal with glare in a museum, how they light the photos, and then with the crowds. You should still see it if it comes near you, but the book is great. I, I have to agree with that. Uh, that, that, that series, that five-part series that uh, Nathan was good enough to share with us and Stephen put together so brilliantly, that, that really stands on its own as a, a really cool contribution. And like we were saying earlier, the stuff that we are fortunate enough to kind of document for posterity and, you know, we're bringing it. Yeah. And Stephen, tell us about the, what you, yeah, you did to make that happen. Well, well, it's not, it's nice to get these things together. I mean, when I, when, when I, I mean, I come from a, an age, um, where I've always tried to document things. I, you know, I talked my parents into uh, buying a video camera in the early 80s um, so that they could go and film the family on holiday. But in fact, I um, took that camera from them and they never used it again. Because uh, <laughs> I've always been the kind of person who likes to document things. It's, and that's been from when I've been a kid. So when I hear about right. these kind of events, <laughs> like um, the, the symposium at Bangor in June and... Um, and Matt Melia's uh, event, the Clockwork Symposium, I just think, right, a lot of people have gone out of their way to put this on, and generally the crowds at these events are, are not big. You know, there might be 50 people in the audience, and it, these great events, and they should be captured. So I, I've been in a, a position where I could speak to the organisers of these events and say, look, is there any chance we can get a recording of these? And then, you know, let's get these events recorded and listened to yeah. i think it's so important it makes them so much more accessible to kubrick fans to have it in one place yeah 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 that's a lot of fun too i mean like anything worth doing it's work it's a lot of work but it's it's definitely a lot of fun like steven said when we first discussed the idea it's like you know we should only do this if we you know enjoy it if we get you know good feelings out of doing it if we find it fun because you know well, like another my- another good reason to call it Kubrick's universe. It's constantly expanding. It feels spacious. <laughs> yes, there's all sorts of stuff in it. I like I like when I'm in Kubrick's universe. Yeah, it's like a four door sedan. And like Kubrick's releases uh, on our on the first release of our podcasts, no one's interested. It doesn't make any money, but in, ta- in, ta- <laughs> in time it will. We we do this because we love doing it, and because we all get along. And uh, like you said, it makes sense. Uh, that like-minded fellows would uh, want to do this and work together because in the end it all comes from uh, our, our mutual and, and you know collective and individual kind of uh, interest in, in Stanley that we all had before we all became friends even. I just think that's so cool. 
I'd like to focus a little bit on the 27th of June, which was the uh, Unique Yow uh, Kubrick tapes that were put on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I re-watched it again uh, last week, and I think that is possibly the best the best insight into Kubrick's world that we've ever had. I mean, before this, you could probably say Making the Shining. Right. But Vivian was maybe the best chunk of footage that give you an insight. I think this is pretty much as good as. I really do. Even though we only get Kubrick on the phone, I think this is a really great video. Um, I have to agree. I mean, it's really cool. Now, James, do you know anything about that rumor that, that, that Kubrick was actually not that far away? He might have been in another room and kind of staged that call to sound like, a, he, he. I'm very sorry I can't be there, but he only wanted to give uh, Junichio so much time, and that was that was Kubrick's way of like controlling the interview. Did you guys hear that rumor? Because I did. Yeah, I heard that rumor. But I mean, I think that's what I first thought when I heard it. I think that's the first thing that went through my mind was that it's probably in the office next door. Yeah. So I don't, so I don't, I don't know if it's a rumor or whether people who understand Kubrick's sensibilities just yeah. thought, thought that because I know I thought that and I still do. Yeah, uh, you know, totally. I mean, it would make sense. It would certainly fit into his milieu of like, you know, being uh, in total control, but also having a certain playful sense, being a bit of a rascal about it. Well, I'm not I'm not sure it's about the total control. I think it's more to do with the fact that he didn't want to appear on camera. That's my, that's my take on it anyway. That, that's all I meant, merely. Yeah, yeah. he might have been willing to, you know, have his voice be heard, but I'm not going to come on your camera. Because he was absolutely lovely on that interview. Uh, he was very yeah. open. He answered yeah. every question as best he could, and he was You're a right. real gentleman. And that's a, that's the best I've heard him. He, it just seemed like he was having a chat in his kitchen. Mm. The biggest part of that video for me that made it uh, an interesting watch was, well, obviously meeting Julian Senior in the uh, marketing department, and then him taking us on a little tour around the uh, around the studios. Yeah. But the but the, uh, the time that we spent with Vivian, she, I think she was nineteen years old, and she's so intelligent and so yes. kind yes. of. She just knows how the film business works. You can tell everything yeah. when she's talking in the first interview. Um, she just understands how the, how the business works, and I, I was quite amazed by a nineteen-year-old understanding the mechanics of um, the filmmaking business. That's a really good point. Are you, are you going to be a movie director? I want to. I mean, I really do want to. I think that obviously it's very suspect if children of movie makers want to be movie makers. I mean, yeah, it's a bit sort of, oh, God. But, uh, I mean, the thing about, if you look at all people who are very successful, like, you know, pop stars, they all end up wanting to make films. I mean, George Harrison is producing films. Barbara Streisand obviously got into films, and she's now directing one. And, uh, you know, there's something about films which is in no other art form, in that in order to make a film, you have to go through almost every process that is artistic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you say artistic and people start puking. You know, okay, well, it's just a work, but you're trying to do something that ultimately will be considered, you know, artistic. And, you know, there's art direction, there's costume, there's makeup, there's acting, there's writing, there's cinematography, 
There's, you know, everything you can think of. And, um, you know, because I wouldn't consider myself a, you know, a, a, you know, a phys you know, like a physics teacher or, a, you know, an astronomer, you know, it, it seems the most intelligent thing to do is to get into films. Because, I mean, I've always been interested in photography, and I've always spent practically all my life with my father. You know, unlike, you know, many people who are in the film business, he is, you know, this sounds, you know, corny, but he is probably one of the few people that I know that really does keep his family life total. You know, it's not flying off here and going there and buy kids, see in two years. You know, because every, every film that he's ever made has always been near home, and it's always been, if we've ever gone anywhere, we've gone with him. And so, as a result, I've always been on films. I mean, I went on to 2001 when I was six. I mean, that's basically how I got to be in the thing, because I was just, you know, walking around the studio doing nothing. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, films are fascinating. I mean, that's why people, you know, uh, write millions of books about it, and there's nothing but people talking about films, because it is, you know, incredible. The, the, whole, the whole concept of movies is incredible. The fact that people turn out to be enormous stars, you know, gods and goddesses, even though they shouldn't really be, people build them up so much in their minds that, that they become that. Films are an incredible phenomena. I mean, it's in, I don't think anyone could have believed that it would have turned out the way that it did when they started. So, you know, people think that films are sort of, you know, incredibly uh, mechanized and organized and everything. And I don't think people realize how, how compromising films are. You know, the fact that, oh my God, we forgot to shoot that today. Well, you know, that's it. How about, yeah, so I'm going to come to the lightning round now for uh, July and uh, possibly August. July 6th, go. The show Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, hosted by Jerry Seinfeld. Season 10, Episode 7, visited Clockwork Records in New York. On the 9th of July, and then again a week later, we had the chance to speak to Leon Vitali for at least seven hours over the course of two different calls, and those are going to be forthcoming. So then on the 15th of July, big, big news when it was announced that a screenplay written by Kubrick and Calder Willingham for a film called Burning Secret had been found. That was big, big, big. Then on the 23rd of July, again, we're doing lightning round here, Film Worker, the story of Leon Vitali was released on DVD on the 30th of July. The Traverse Film Festival um, names their venue the Kubrick. Also in July, the company known as Master Replicas Group announced that they were going to release HAL replicas as a commercial product available. That's just July. Yeah, the Traverse Film Festival is the um, festival up in um, Michigan. I forget. I forget the name of the city. Uh, where Michael Moore? It's Michael Moore's festival in uh, in Michigan. And I know in the past, I think uh, Katharina went years ago. But this year they they filmed they showed film worker and Leon went and Leon was was interviewed there and they for that the, the main theater you know in a film festival it's in a town and they they show things in several theaters but and they usually have a central main theater and they they just renamed it 
I don't think it's permanent. I think just for the event, they called it the Kubrick, and they made a really cool promotional video for it. You know, like there was a little kid on a bicycle, yeah, yeah, always things like that, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to plug. I want to plug Filmworker as the greatest event of the year for me, even though it was released for the film festival last year. They made changes to it in between then. And when they released it again, when we all met Leon, and uh, those changes really solidified it. Were they addicted? Or I didn't know about that. They, they just polished it? it. Yeah, they polished it up with some different music. Hmm. And I'm not even sure what it was, but uh, it just made it more of a, co- a cohesive story. It was a significant improvement and such an important film. And of course, uh, we have been following it on SCOS, and Elizabeth Yaffe has been telling us about all the awards it's been winning. You know, a rollout of a film takes a long time. It was really awesome. And to be at the Metrograph back in May with you, and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting there and watching the documentary, and you had seen the, uh, the uh, rough draft, as it were, I know, towards the end of 2017 and you did get to meet Leon then you shared your picks discuss and uh also the uh moment when I was just sitting there in the theater knowing there was a Q&A coming and uh Alec Baldwin came out to moderate and you always know that he's a big Kubrick fan and uh it was just it was just cool of him to come out for that event we know we know he loves 2001 he speaks ebulliently of it uh, in interviews whenever he's asked about Kubrick. But, you know, the guy didn't have to show up uh, for Leon. I just, you know, sat there thinking, oh, that's cool that he did. August, come she will. Did anyone else want to say anything else about July? Oh. The oh. master replicas? Good. Uh-huh. Anybody want to talk about August then? <laughs> good August. Anybody talk about August. We had some cool things in August, didn't we? Well, we had the uh, staged reading of the Napoleon script penned by David Serrero. Oh, yeah. Mark was there with uh, Scott Scott Schmeckman. It was at this uh, very picturesque, I think, again, it was a Jewish temple, but just lit with great decorations. And David Serrero is an opera singer. So he sang a lot and he got a bunch of actors. This is the kind of thing he seems to do with different properties. But he had a special interest in Napoleon before he learned that Kubrick had actually done a script for Napoleon. Interesting. And uh, it really got me excited to hear a live performance and much more than if I had just read the script to hear it read, which he, he did just, you know, was faithful to the script other than him singing. He picked out a lot of songs, but it got me excited as to the research that Kubrick put in. And uh, also the idea that, uh, that, uh, the greatest film never made was in effect Kubrick's Waterloo. There's a parallel there. Right. And I think you could 
I think eventually Kubrick had such an interesting life. I mean, aside from his achievement, he was just an interesting guy. And I would like to start seeing, I like to see people start to, now that he's being demythologized, to remythologize him as just a great artist. Yeah. What, what can you, how can you tell his story in a way that makes his films even, the achievement of his films even greater? Uh, and also, I guess, just that here is yet another way that, that, that Kubrick, another aspect of everything that Kubrick was into. Napoleon is certainly the biggest one that we didn't get to see the film of. So a great evening. It makes you, it makes you want to see what makes you think about what Kubrick might have done with these characters that he's researched and the story that he put together. talked about what happened on the 24th of August, which was the theatrical release of 2001 A Space Odyssey in IMAX theaters in North America. Uh, Can we uh, mention uh, one indie films? Uh, another favorite podcast was uh, Kubrick by Candlelight. Was that part uh, of this year? No. Oh. That was seven. I checked before. Was that the year before? Yeah, when I was doing the research. 2017 was actually just as eventful. Yeah. Maybe a, my, maybe a tiny bit more, or maybe they're about even as yeah. 2018, yeah. which which could mean a few, it could mean that I wasn't paying attention from 2016, or I think there's just really an uptick in, in, in there's a Kubrick uptick. No, I, I think you're out. Yeah. I think you're out. I think 2019 is going to continue the trend. When I was at the Museum of the City of New York, uh, one of the the uh, curators there said Kubrick is having a moment, which, you know, that's a popular phrase now. Mm-hmm. I think, though, it's it's going to be longer than a moment. I think it's there. I think for he's the, getting, yeah, I think it's there for a while now. Yeah, I think he's in for the long haul. Kubrick's yes. Candlelight was um, was definitely 2007 because I, I was going to put I said, oh, Kubrick and I looked it up on oh, no, 2017. And I, I, watched, I actually did watch that one. That was, uh, um, and uh, we, me and Jason and Stephen were talking about the music recently. But the we were talking about the, there was this music in there, and I said, hey, this music is so good. And I looked it up, it's this obscure 70s band I never heard of. And Oh, yeah, that was in the podcast. Uh, Cromwell. Cromwell. Yes. Cromwell. Brilliant. What a brilliant band. I listened to the whole album. What a great band. Yeah, I downloaded the whole album. Was, uh, I found it on YouTube. It was so it was really good. It reminded me of um, T-Rex. It kind of yeah, yeah. Like, Love it. You got so so many questions about what is and what is not. But you know, for each there's a. Million 
of the Why did we not get to see it in the U.S.? Even now, it's still never been shown in the U.S. What's never been shown? Kubrick by Candlelight. Yeah, well, it was on well, the film circuit. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's, it'll probably end up being on Amazon Prime or something in the near future. I, I, I'm friends with David O'Reilly on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure he posts, he has posted like that it, it went to Washington, D.C., it went to Chicago. No, it's, it's, it's on the fest, no? festival circuit, but it's not yeah, available to the normal viewer at right, all. Right, right. All right, but well, not it, it in New York. Shown, it hasn't been shown in theaters in the States, hasn't it, Stephen? I'm not crazy. I don't I am, know. I think you are crazy, but I don't know about the... Uh, that's what I, I'm saying. I haven't seen any. <laughs> I know, that's what I'm saying. Bloody well, Rod. Anybody who can do as good an impersonation of Stephen Bloody Rig as me, it's got to be bloody crazy. <laughs> hey, Stephen, I know who, who to get to do, the, do your life in a film. If they have, <laughs> he looks he both looks and sounds like you, hey. Dominic Dominic Monaghan. Do you know who he is from? Remember in Lost? Remember the TV show Lost? Let me look him up. Dominic Monaghan. I know the name. I'm sure I know the face. Dominic Monaghan. I know the autobiography I wrote. What? In Lost. Oh, right. oh, not the guy from Bloody Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steven's not pleased about that. Why not? Good looking guy. He dated what's her name from from Lost. He went out with uh, I don't know her name. The lead actress. Uh, no, I don't mind. I think that looks about. Yeah, I can see it. I've got. He's got that special nose, hasn't he? He's got a special nose it, like me. Sounds like you too. I used to love Lost until the last the last season. He was but, in a relationship with Lost co-star Evangeline Lilly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you bastard! <laughs> Good on you, Stephen. Well, I'm gl- I'm glad that I look like uh, that elf. <laughs> that hot, yeah. <laughs> Rigsy the Hobbit. <laughs> Rigsy the Hobbit. I just want to do the voiceover when they make the movie in a town in the north of England. One man had the audacity to launch a podcast <laughs> while looking scarily like Dominic Monaghan. So, yeah, on uh, September 26th, the band Deerhoof, uh, who has a pretty big indie following, they uh, announced that they were going to be releasing a single of uh, their own version of Midnight in the Stars and You, the Al Bally classic we hear at the end of The Shining. And that was released a month later on October 26th. Uh, also, speaking of uh, The Shining, uh, the same date, 26th of September, Mad Magazine, the classic publication in the U.S., which uh, went all digital this year, ceased being a print publication. They did The Shining as their Halloween cover with Alfred E. Newman appearing as the twins in the hallway. Then a day later... Uh, Adam Savage completed his Star Child prop, uh, which was pretty amazing. That story hit hits gas and took uh, over Jason, for a while. I'm just going to take you back for the Deer Hoof uh, announcement. It's a uh, Deer Hoof with a double O. Let me just amend that. Uh, so, yeah, we the Amer- Americans pronounce it hoof. Oh, yeah, that's how you say it. A deer hoof. Anyway, you know what reminds me? I need this knife. I'm going to take this. It's okay? Okay, yeah. I just need to pull it back, though, you know. Well, the poor thing, you know, we got 
they hit him in his, uh, we hit the deer in his paw, what do you call it? The paw. The paw. paw the foot. The hoof. The hoof got caught in the grill. Oh. I got I to gotta hack it off. Ooh. Come on, it's a sin. You're going to leave it there. You know? Well, also in September, Festin released uh, an album called Inside Kubrick. That was pretty cool. And it's like the hits just keep on coming. Yeah, it was announced also that uh, Dr. Sleep, Stephen King's sequel book to his Shining book, was going to be made into a feature film in 2018. And uh, the director, Mike Flanagan, was tabbed. Apparently, he contacted Dan Lloyd for something to do with the filmed Shining sequel that has now wrapped production. And... Um, he said that in a tweet. He was, it was very, that's it. That's the extent of all he said. He just said, I, I think somebody is responding to a question. And he said, Well, he has, I, all I could say is Dan Lloyd has been contacted. Yeah. So kind of left it mysterious like that. The, the director, Mike Flanagan, apparently he did this series that's on Netflix. I think it's called The Haunting of Hill House. Did you guys know that? Oh, he does that? I saw the first couple of episodes of that. That's what I read, unless I'm mistaking his name with a different series that dropped on Netflix this year, but I think it was that one. And I heard some good things about it, so fingers crossed, I guess. Wow, okay, we're into October. You can put applause there. <laughs> we finally got to the 4th of October. The Guardian, the, the Guardian newspaper announced in early October the Festival of Stanley, uh, as they called it. The touring Kubrick exhibition was headed to the United Kingdom. Uh, and, of course, this is the traveling exhibit that's toured from Germany to Mexico to South Korea, but has never been uh, to the country that Stanley called home. So the Design Museum in London has uh, announced some details of it. Uh, that it was coming uh, in May of 2019, going to be devoted uh, entirely to Kubrick. And they also announced, uh, The Guardian did, there was going to be a Kubrick season at the BFI, as well as uh, new programs and films on BBC TV and radio. So, Stephen, do you have any inside track on that? Not really. Great, thanks. Okay, <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> on the 13th of October there was a showing at the Museum of the Moving Image where uh, uh, Mark and I got to hang out again and Keir DeLay was there Dan Richter and uh, author of Space Odyssey Michael Benson Mark and I got to meet uh, Professor Benson and speak with him and he said he's going to come on the show and also who was there who was moderating the group i want to give a shout out to dr heather berlin because uh i reached out to her and she said she's going to be happy to uh give us an interview and she's one of the leading uh neuroscientists in the u.s right now and she was an extremely adept moderator on the stage kind of juggling the uh, thoughts and insights of Keir, Dan, and Mr. Benson. And because she does a lot of research into artificial intelligence and 
projected pathways for where all of this might be going as it relates to uh, neuroscience. But no, you know, I uh, I have kind of like a, a, a passing interest in the subject of artificial intelligence and where this is all going because we're definitely at the dawn of that era. And I'm personally not convinced that it's going to yield just amazing benefits for the human race. Um, but I'm not entirely sold that it's a, a doomsday for us either, uh, or any kind of death knell for uh, human individuality to have to incorporate AI into our daily lives. And I think the generation behind ours is going to have to contend with that a lot more than guys like us who are in our 40s, 50s. But um, I am fascinated by that, and I am glad to be kind of in over my head during the talk with Dr. Berlin whenever we get there, because uh, I have a lot of questions, and I think she's going to be a great guest and have a lot of really cool insights, specifically as it relates to where we're at now and where it kind of began to enter the public consciousness with 2001 a space odyssey 50 years ago and the concept of an AI turning bad. Um, and, and the, and, and the moral and ethical dilemmas, you know, was Hal really bad? You know, if he's programmed by humans and then he wants to kill all the astronauts, is it the computer's fault? You know, is it the AI? Like, I just, I find that kind of thing endlessly fascinating. And I'm definitely looking forward to that show next year. Yeah. Hell yeah. On October 30th, it was uh, released on Amazon. Finally, the 2001 uh, Space Odyssey 4K Blu-ray. And if you ordered it in advance on Amazon, you got it that day. If not, you got that holdup that we were mentioning before. Uh, on the 1st and 2nd of November, there was the Clockwork Symposium uh, with Matt Melia at the University of the Arts in London. We, we spoke to uh, Gerald Freed, uh, Stanley's uh, early composer and friend, on the 11th of November. And uh, the next day, uh, the voice of Hal, Douglas Rain, a highly revered Shakespearean actor from Canada, known to most of the world as the voice of Hal 9000. He passed away. Uh, four days later, we lost Pablo Ferro who did uh, the iconic titles for uh, the title cards for Dr. Strangelove and 2000, I'm sorry, and uh, A Clockwork Orange. And of course, uh, the Pharaoh family and their kids were friends with uh, uh, the Kubricks. Pablo Ferro didn't just do the title sequences for those two films, he also did the trailers. Thank you, right, right. I'm in. This is Pablo Ferro. Bam! He got shot in the neck. Pablo was on life support. He was going to die. Hello. He was that minister of the last rites. The ground shift. May I have your attention, it please? Shifted. We thought somebody was out to get us. We didn't know why. May I have your attention, please? Thank you. Who is Pablo Ferro? I had the feeling he was a bit of a gypsy. It had to be an artist or somebody very strange. Something about the essence of Pablo Ferro. He's like certain shamans, you know. He's a true artist. True artist, true artist, true artist. He's like a walking work of art. 
fuck somebody like that came over from Cuba when he was 12 years old and never wore shoes before he came to New York City. You have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. He was Kubrick's guy. One of those guys that has a kind of a legendary aspect. Give it to Pablo and leave him alone for two weeks. He'll come up with something. Big tribute is going on tonight for a Hollywood movie master by the name of Pablo Farrell. You may not know the name, but I bet you know the work. Been in a movie theater in the past 40 years, you've seen Pablo Farrell's work. The greatest credits ever seen on any film. I don't care what the budget was, what the film was. These are the great credits. You've got to be crazy. This is as great as life gets. This was never, never laughed man. There was no time in Pablo's apartment. Sometimes he would just be there for days. It was just like part of a scene of a movie. This is Pablo Ferro. Who was it? When uh, uh, he did pass, uh, or sometime afterwards, uh, his daughter Joy uh, had shared some still, footage, uh, still photos of uh, Pablo giving what was his final interview and it was for the Academy, and you can bet that uh, the Oscars are going to have a, a tribute uh, to him in 2019. I'm sure they'll do something, a retrospective on his career. The guy worked for over five decades, six decades in the field. And he, he did so many. He did movies like Goodwill Hunting and L.A. Confidential, you know, Men in Black. Uh, on the 20th of November, um, the aforementioned screenplay for Burning Secret that was discovered earlier in the year was finally auctioned off. Rachel is leading at 38,000. Internet, if you want to jump back in, it'll be 40,000 to you. Just on the very far phones at $38,000 and selling, if no more, all done all through at 38,000. 5174. Thank you very much. Three days later, 2001 was performed with live orchestra once again, this time in Los Angeles, and was hosted by Malcolm McDowell, our friends in the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, who attended that, reported that it was a wonderful time. Uh, splendid time was guaranteed for all. Okay, well, then there we uh, found ourselves uh, in December. And uh, there was some other news in the uh, final month of the year, our first year on the air. Uh, the world's first 8K channel was announced uh, that it will be coming to air, and they're going to begin broadcasting with a presentation of 2001 A Space Odyssey. A few days later, on the 5th of December, there was an Academy Museum tease, which hit the internet. Something uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was going to do in tribute to 2001. And then uh, later that week, Mark was at uh, uh, an event called Take a Strauss Pill. Mark, why don't you tell our listeners about that, what you saw? Oh, yeah. So that was the culmination of 2000 at 50 Fest uh, done by Keith Bizak and his wife, Lenora, and they commissioned a completely new score for 2001, and some of the composers were there, uh, and it was really mind-blowing to have 2001 without either Thus Spake Zarathustra, 
or the boot Danny Waltz. Uh, just extremely interesting. They did, because they, the way they set it up as the experiment, there's 20 different composers, and each composer has a different sensibility, and it's hard to go from one sensibility to another and get used to it. The most effective part for me was the Stargate, where it was just one guy took it all the way from the start of the Stargate sequence through the hotel room. Also, they scored a little bit that did not have a score before, and uh, extremely interesting. I thought it was a great success, and they're going to try to do it again at a different venue with an even better sound system uh, in early 2019. Very cool. Wow. So uh, we do know that the John Mullo archive went to auction at Bonhams uh, in London on the 12th of December. Uh, Mr. Mullo was a costume designer who worked on Star Wars, the original Alien, Barry Lyndon and Napoleon, uh, as well as Gandhi. Not five. Well, the renowned Kubrick's unfinished production of Napoleon, drawings and designs for it here. And we start with interest coming in at £7,000 at seven. At £11,500, are we now selling to you online? I think we are at 11500 online at 11500 everyone out. It's going at 11500 Thank you very much, 5011 online. Lot number six now. Another interesting collection from the Napoleon film of uh, production documents here. And bids in at 2,000. Yes, 2,000. 2, 2. Up in the sky at 3,800 pounds then. Selling to you online at 3,8. Are we done in the room? Everyone happy? At 3,8. Then it's going to you online at 3,800 pounds. At 3,8. Well, uh, I guess, Stephen, our last uh, proper uh, interview of 2018 happened on the 11th of December, and we spoke with... Uh, Michael Tarn, the great actor who was, of course, uh, the youngest Droog in Clockwork Orange, who played Pete. I know that was a, a big bit of fun for you because you are the biggest Clockwork fan that I know. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> the, um, on some of the, the items you mentioned for December, I think that 8K channel is Japan, and I don't know what 4K means, so... I'm twice as confused what 8K means. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the Academy Tees was the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. It was supposed to come out in 2017, and it was supposed to be 2018. And eventually, I think they're saying 2019 now. And they they bought the... What was the thing that they bought in that auction a couple of years ago? Oh, the Aries 1B. Right. So they did a little tease of various... It wasn't specifically about 2001, but it's about various things that are going to be on display in the museum, and they show right, right. the Ares spacecraft. We've, we've definitely had an amazing 2018. I, I just want to say um, from the heart, thank you so much to you guys, Stephen and James and Mark. It really is uh, something I'm really proud of to be involved with you guys and, and doing this show, and and, you know, especially to thank uh, all the people who tune in and listen and have taken an interest in the show that we love bringing you guys so much. 
Um, we've got a lot of uh, guests lined up for 2019. We, well, we mentioned Alan Bowker, uh, our friend Alexander Pietrzak, uh, Dennis Gonzalez. Uh, we interviewed Marshall Allman, who did the fan edit called Eyes Wide Cut. We spoke with Shirley Jaffe, who uh, owned the house where Alex and the Droogs break in. Um, of course, the late Pablo Ferro will be bringing you that, uh, as well as a special multi-part uh, interview with Leon Vitali himself, um, Michael Tarn, as we mentioned, we just spoke to, um, the actor Adrian Bush, who was in fact in the British military when he uh, uh, worked for Stanley on Full Metal Jacket, and uh, our friend Uncle Vinny, and of course our buddy James Marinacci gave us a dedicated interview. That was awesome. Uh, Herbie Norville, Dimitri Castorine, author Michael Benson, so much more. And as of a few days ago, our humble little podcast did bypass the 10,000 download mark, thanks to all of you. Um, so, yeah, I just want to thank Stephen again for producing this show and doing so much great research and James and Mark and also uh, the three wise men, as we call them, Filippo Ulaveri, Simone Odino, and uh, none other than Rod Mundi. Anyway, good stuff, guys. We'll catch you on the flip side. Well, that was our five-hour ramble that we spared you the boredom of by managing to cut it down to a user-friendly couple of hours. I'd like to thank Nathan Abrams for talking to us in this episode and don't forget about Nathan's book about Eyes Wide Shut that he wrote with Robert Kolker. That should be out in April 2019. And also, his current book, Stanley Kubrick, New York, Jewish Intellectual, which we featured in episode 9. Also, a big thanks to Nathan and Bangor University for allowing us to broadcast their 2001 Beyond 50 event to all you lucky people in our amazing five-part series. A few more books I'd like to recommend are Reconstructing Strange Love by Mick Broderick, which we featured in episode one, Moonwatcher's Memoir by Dan Richter, which we featured in episode two, Shane Rimmer's Autobiography from episode three, Stanley Kubrick and Me by Filippo Oliviere from episode 4 and Kubrick's Monolith by Joe R. Frinze from episode 8. Also, not forgetting the amazing and informative book Space Odyssey by Michael Benson. We will be speaking to Michael in 2019 about this book. Thanks to the Movie Geeks United podcast, which is Jamie, Dean, Jerry, Aaron and Adam, who produce the show, as well as the Kubrick series, and for exposing us to the Tim Carhill Rolling Stone Kubrick interview. You must check that out at Movie Geeks United online and also listen to Kubrick's Universe episode 5 where we talk to Movie Geeks co-host Dean Treadway. Check out the Film Worker documentary which is all about Leon Vitale and his career with Stanley Kubrick which is now available on DVD and Netflix. We will be broadcasting a six-part interview with Leon in 2019 and also look out for David O'Reilly's fantastic short film Kubrick by Candlelight, which we featured in episode six. Thanks to David Morley, who spoke to us in a lovely interview about his time working on Barry Lyndon in episode 10, and the inimitable Derek Lyons, who entertained us with his tales of working on The Shining and many other classic UK-produced films in episode 11. What a couple of geezers. 
Goodbye, farewell, Auf Wiedersehen, Tara, to Kubrick alumni, Aurelie Irma, Douglas Rain, and the amazing Pablo Ferro, who all left us this year. We spoke to Pablo in 2018, and he will be featured in an upcoming episode of the show. Competition time. If you can cash your mind back to the start of the show, we played 13 Christmas tracks. If you can name the songs and or the artists, please email us with the answers and whoever gets the most correct titles will win a personally signed photo print from Full Metal Jacket's private joker himself, Matthew Mordine. The signed print was kindly given to us by Matthew's friend and colleague, Adam Rakoff, who appeared in our episode 7 podcast. I will also put details of this competition on Facebook at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Check out the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society New York City Meetup Group, which is a regular real-life meetup situation in New York for Kubrick folk, commandeered by our very own Mark Lentz. Check it out. I'd like to thank our host with the most... Mr. Jason Furlong, for his work this year in fronting the show and being a constant source of inspiration, intrigue and good times. Jason is an amazing guy who not only hosts the show but also writes and produces music for the podcast, including the theme tune, and without him, the show would not be happening. Um, Jason and I decided to do this show just over a year ago. We've had a great time doing it. Long may it continue. Hey Jasper, don't you go changing. Also, I'd like to show my appreciation, admiration and respect to Mr. James Marinaccio and Mr. Mark Lentz for all their contributions to not only this podcast, but also the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook. It's a great situation. Three great three great guys. Uh, thanks to the three wise men, Filippo Oliviere, Simone Odino and Rod Munday. They actually feel like the ultimate encyclopedia on Stanley Kubrick. Check out their websites archiviokubrick.it that's from Filippo 2001italia.it from Simone and visual-memory.co.uk from Rod Monday and now we're going to leave you with this fantastic version of Midnight, The Stars and You by Deerhoof or Deerhoof depending on what side of the pond you're from this new song is available now on 7 inch green vinyl from famousclass.com or digitally. Have a great 2019. I'm Stephen Rigg. Tatty bye.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.